All right, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 20 is where we're going to be. So if you have a Bible, flip on over there. Uh, You can also look up on the screen. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we have Bibles here floating around. And so grab one of those. And uh, we're going to land there shortly and be in Luke chapter 3, 1 through 20. Just an amazing passage. I've just been chewing on this all week and just been really excited about uh, this passage. But first, uh, can I tell you a story? That's a personal story about uh, when I first brought my wife Becky home to meet the parents, right? Nothing like the movie, but uh, it, was a, it was a pretty cool day. So uh, I was a sophomore in college. She was a freshman in college, and we drove the 10-hour journey together, which was an adventure in and of itself, from college to my house that I grew up in. And uh, we get there, and she meets my mom, she meets my dad, she meets my brother, and she meets my sister. My brother was 16, my sister I think was 13 at the time, and it was, it was great. Now, some of you have met my brother because he comes and visits from time to time. He's, he's currently living in Chicago. He's a pretty classy dude. Uh, he lives in a part of Chicago called Lincoln Park, which would, I don't know, be like Back Bay. It's a really kind of swanky area. And he's a classy dude. But something happened while I was away for the semester where he decided to enter into this redneck phase of his life. And uh, he, he, he started wearing camouflage and, God forbid, listening to country music. And it was awful. And I came home and I was, I was shocked. My brother, what has happened to this guy, you know? And, uh, you know, it was, it was crazy. And Becky was a little bit confused because that wasn't how I described him. And I was shocked. She was shocked. And, uh, you know, you see what happens when I leave is the class leaves out of the family as well. I don't know. Uh, so we, we get home. We meet everybody. She meets my brother. And we weren't home for very long until my brother said, hey, Becky. You want to go mudding? And she goes, what's mudding? Classy Massachusetts, New England girl. What's, what's mudding? He goes, well, it's like off-roading in my Jeep, but in the mud. It had been raining for like three weeks. And she goes, yeah, that'd be awesome. And, and so my brother, uh, he was 16. He had just got this car. It was a Suzuki Samurai, which is like a little kind of Jeep type thing. And he bought it for $500 off this lady. It was falling apart. And uh, it was, <laughs> it sounded like a bumblebee. And just, and as it, as it drove along. And uh, since he was in this redneck phase, he decided to soup this bad boy up. And so what he did is he, you know, he got a new vinyl top because it had holes all in it and mold growing on it. He got a new vinyl top. And, and then he spent about $2,000 getting these wheels that were massive and then tires to go on the wheels that were off-road tires. And then uh, he, he jacked it way up so that in order to get into it, you had to climb up into this, this little Jeep. And then he put uh, this new exhaust on it. So it no longer sounded like a, a bumblebee, but it sounded more like a gorilla. Just and it, was, it was really pretty cool. And, uh, you know, it, it actually looked really nice when he, he finished it. And, and so my brother and my sister and my girlfriend and I uh, all jumped into the Jeep. That's what we called it, the Jeep, even though it was a Suzuki. And we got a couple miles out into the woods through the mud, and we were going through these muddy trails, and we were going, we even went over a little uh, river, and we would go through these huge holes uh, in, 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 in the trail that would fill up with water, and they just, that's what they called them. They called them holes, and so they gave them uh, names. They gave each of the holes a name. So this one is Big Bertha, and, and this one is the Gator, and they had all these names for the, the holes. And, and then we come up upon this hole, and he stops, and he looks back, and he says, this is the biggest hole out here. You ready for this? 
And I wasn't ready because it had been raining for three weeks. And I said, are you, are you sure about this? He goes, all right, no, we got this. And so he floors it. And we go burning up to this hole, and we hit this hole, and mud is just flying everywhere outside. We're watching it go, and it just slows down, and the tires are just burning hard. And my brother screams, shake, rock it. And we start rocking the car so that it won't get stuck and help the tires to get traction. And we're, go, go, go. And his confidence starts to wear out, and then all of a sudden you hear, and just water going up into the tailpipe. And then it starts to come up into the car, and it starts to, to raise up towards our ankles. And he goes, get out of here. So we roll the windows down. We crawl out of the car, and we stretch across the hole to try not to get all muddy. And we come crawling out of the hole, and Becky's laughing hysterically. That was awesome. And my brother's almost crying about all this money that he had put into this car and we were just stuck a couple of miles out well fortunately we had my new cell phone I got my first cell phone nextel remember nextels beep beep like a walkie-talkie beep beep uh, mom <laughs> and my mom comes pulling up in the minivan with the tarp in the back because we were covered in mud and we jump you want to see this picture we got a picture of this so check this out look at us young and in love oh man my little redneck brother over there and you know what? The Jeep never ran again. It was completely toast. Never ran again. Got it pulled out. It's sitting in a shop nearby in the back parking lot. And even still today, when I go to visit my family, my brother says, you want to go look at the Jeep? <laughs> and we go look at it. It's just sitting there, rusting out. You know why it never ran again? Because it wasn't a Jeep. It wasn't a, a Jeep. It had this beautiful vinyl top, had new wheels, shiny, had new off-road tires. It was jacked up high. It had this nice exhaust that was loud and made it sound mean. And he had sunk several thousand dollars into this thing, and it was dead in the water. Why? Because the one thing that wasn't addressed was the engine, <laughs> It's a Suzuki engine, for crying out loud. And Luke 3 covers the story of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is dealing with the engine. What's at the core? He's dealing with the, the heart. See, the, the spiritual climate of the people of Israel at this time had been that it had been all about the exterior and how we looked on the outside and what people thought about us and, and how we came across. And John says, I'm going to point you to the heart. And so we've been walking straight through the book of Luke and the whole spiritual mindset of the world at this time is starting to get shaken up because Jesus is coming to the planet. And we're turning a page in salvation history, in biblical history, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant, from law to, to, to grace. And God, through John the Baptist, is showing people that it's not so much about the exterior, but it's actually about what's under the hood. It's about what's deep within you. And so today and throughout this week as I've been praying, I've been asking God the Holy Spirit to do a, a spiritual diagnostic on us about what's under the hood. And so let's, let's just jump right into it. Luke chapter 3, 1 and, and 2. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, 
and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And so from the start, at the very beginning of the book, if you remember, weeks ago, months ago now actually, we saw that the objective of Luke is to write a historical account of the life and the ministry and the message of Jesus, funded by a a powerful man, a wealthy man likely named Theophilus. We know this because he was referred to as most excellent Theophilus, which means he's a man who has access to means, to to money, and he funds Luke, and he's uh, powerful, so he's going to keep Luke accountable. You don't lie, Luke. You don't make this up. You don't embellish this, Luke, or I could have your head chopped off because I'm most excellent Theophilus. He funds Luke as a benefactor for Luke, to compile eyewitness testimony and write an orderly account of the life and the message and the ministry of Jesus. It says that Theophilus has heard a little bit about this Jesus of Nazareth, about perhaps even that he's, he's died and been said to have risen from the dead, and he wants to know if it's true. And so he says, Luke, you're a doctor, physician, you're brilliant in your Greek scholarship, and so let's, let's do this. And so Luke is very sure when he writes stuff like this to, to include the historical setting. He's showing us that this is not fiction. This is not spiritual uh, folklore. This is history. And let me show you some records so that you can know that this is real. He says, here's some, here's some dates, some names. In the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate is governor. Herod is tetrarch, along with Philip and Lysanias. And, and these are your, your political leaders he starts out with. And then he says, uh, there are the spiritual leaders. There's, there's uh, the priests of Annas and, and Caiaphas. And so you've got your political leaders. You've got your spiritual leaders. And then you've got John. <laughs> and He's neither, right? John does not fit into your peg. He's not going to play the game. He ain't nobody's puppet, right? That's what John says. I- I'm not going to fit into that. I'm not going to do the dance. I'm not going to balance politics and spirituality and this whole Fox News intermingling thing. That's not me. That's not John. Where is John? He's in the wilderness, <laughs> He's an interesting kind of guy. Why? He's in the wilderness because he is preparing and waiting for the Lord to show him what to do. Why? Because, as we've seen throughout the past weeks, he has a special calling on his life. A very unique calling that was known before he was even born. Because his father, Zechariah, goes into the temple in Jerusalem. And the angel Gabriel of all angels comes to him and says, your old barren wife is going to have a child and it's going to be by a miracle of God. And that child, John, will be very, very special. He's the one that's been prophesied about from, from long ago. He would come just before the Messiah, Jesus, and he would preach and prepare people for Jesus. And so John is born. He's been getting ready. He's growing in his wisdom and his preparedness. He's getting ready. He's in the wilderness, likely fasting and studying and praying and asking God what's next. And the book of Matthew tells us a little bit about John. And it tells us that that he's wearing a garment of camel's hair. And he's wearing a leather belt. And for food, he ate locusts or grasshoppers, big ones, desert grasshoppers. And Honey, 
And so John was local and organic before it was cool, right? I mean, he would have been living in JP next to Whole Foods. I mean, that is John, right? The urban wilderness of, of JP, that is. And, and, and honestly, I've always, you know, been intrigued with, with John and thought, you know, his, his attire and his, his food, strange. And to me, I'm like, wouldn't it just take away his credibility? Like, who are you and why do you look so funny? And why would I possibly listen to you? Like, are you crazy? And, and as I've been studying and preparing this week, uh, I've researched and, and learned that his attire would have evoked for the people uh, of Israel reminders of the prophet Elijah. And so listen to 2 Kings chapter 1, uh, verse 8. Here's what it says. Uh, speaking of Elijah, it says, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. And so the Jewish people would have seen John. They would have thought about Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of all time. A, a document from the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the 40s and, and, and 50s show us that, that, uh, that locust and, and wild honey were, were a common source of food for desert people of the day. And even today in the Middle East and in, in parts of, of Africa, uh, very poor people will eat wild honey and, and locusts to, to feed themselves. And so he wasn't crazy he was, he was very special. He was the new Elijah. In fact, people hadn't heard from a prophet of God since Malachi back in 460 B.C. So it's been, a, it's been a long, long time. That's the last book of the Old Testament. Nobody's heard from a prophet since then until John comes on the scene. Let's say he's 30-ish, and so that's about 490 years of silence. God's building anticipation. The Messiah is coming. And then boom, just like Malachi says, here comes this forerunner to the Messiah, this Elijah-like character, just like Malachi prophesied. And John is, he's, he's different. He's just a little bit different. He doesn't fit into the political establishment. He doesn't fit into the religious establishment. Uh, he's certainly not a, a, a fashionista. I mean, he is just different, right? He's, he's John. John does not care what people think about him. And he's going to say exactly what he needs to say to the very end when he gets his head chopped off. That's, that's John. Yet if you remember what the angel Gabriel said to his father Zechariah before he was born, he said he's going to be great. And so greatness is saying things that are challenging and difficult regardless of what people think because it's true and because it's what God's called you to do. He is going to be great. He's not hindered by anybody's opinion of him. He's going to say and do exactly what God has for him to say and do. Even if it's hard for people to hear, he has no problem saying, delivering the hard news. And so what is the hard news? What is the hard message? Well, he's out in the wilderness. He pops in an energy bar. Or a locust. Takes some honey. He cinches up his leather belt. And he goes in. And listen what it says about him. Verse 3. And he went into the region around the Jordan. Proclaiming a baptism of repentance. For the forgiveness of sins. So. John gets in there. And he starts to go all over the region. And he's preaching and he's saying you need to repent and to be baptized. So Luke is summarizing the, the ministry of John the Baptist. Not a denomination, 
That's not him. It's he's John the Baptist because he baptizes people or John the, the baptizer. He hits the lecture circuit. He's going throughout all the region and he's saying the king is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's like this flashing light. Jesus is coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. And we need to turn or repent, turn from sin, turn and be prepared and ready for him. He is going to forgive us of all of our sin. And then John would baptize them, which was symbolic of a spiritual cleansing and the forgiveness of sin that they had just turned from. Now, today we know that as Christians, our Christian baptism uh, symbolizes even much more than that. It symbolizes the death, burial, and the resurrection. I talk to people all the time. What's baptism about? Washing away our sin. Well, that's John the Baptist's baptism. Our baptism actually identifies with Jesus died, was buried, and resurrects, and I die to being the master of my own life, the Lord of my own life, and then I resurrect to new life in Christ. And so his baptism, not a complete total fulfillment baptism, it's cleansing away of sin, turning from sin. And so John is preaching, repent, repent. What's the very first word that Jesus delivers in his ministry? Repent. And so John is preaching that. Turn from sin, get your hearts ready for Jesus. And now we need to talk about repentance. I know that's what you're itching to talk about today. I just hope we come to church and talk about repentance. But we have to talk about it because I know that many people are confused about this thing we call repentance. And so I want to walk us through repentance. What is it? What does it look like? How do we do it? What is repentance? And so I want to give you a few points on repentance. If you're a note taker, now's the time to get started. Here's what repentance is. And here's the first thing we need to know. Real repentance is Jesus-centered. Write that down. Real repentance is Jesus-centered. And so let's read on. Verses 4 through 6. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And so Luke quotes Isaiah, the prophet, and he quotes his prophecy about John, which came 750 years prior. Isaiah chapter 43 through 5, which says he's going to be in the wilderness. He's going to prepare people for the Lord. And then it also says that the valleys will be filled up and the mountains will be lowered and the crooked paths will be made straight and the rough places will be leveled out. It's a poetic way of saying that the path for the coming Messiah, the path for Jesus will be prepared. Now, back then, when a dignitary or a king would come into town, they would send a herald before him. He would go into the town and he would announce to the people, the king is coming. The king is coming. The, the king is coming. And so the people would know, the king is coming. So I better get the roads ready. Because back then, they didn't necessarily have nice roads going into town. Some of them were just footpaths that maybe a donkey or a camel could get to. And so there was no way that the king could get there with his entourage, his chariots, his animals, the, the, the crowds. And so what the people would do after hearing that the king is coming is they would often widen the paths into roads they would level out hills not unlike what we do today where we put dynamite in the rocks and we blast it out so we can put a road right down the middle they would uh, level out the hills they would fill in the holes and the the ruts they would smooth them out 
and get the roads ready because the king is coming. Now, if we do have the Olympics here in Boston, which I think would be awesome. I know we got mixed opinions on that. In 2024, we've got about a decade to get our roads ready. (laughs) And I'm a little skeptical because the Kennedys couldn't even do it. But uh, we're going to see what can happen. And and get our tunnels ready, get our trains ready. We'll, We'll see what we can do. We've got a little bit of a warning. We've got a, we got a decade. And the herald says, you better get ready. Lots of people are coming. The, the, the king is coming. And so what do the towns do when they hear that the king is coming? They get ready. They don't say, okay, <laughs> wait a second, king. I mean, this is Boston. <laughs> it's a little tricky. These roads have been here for forever the Kennedys couldn't even take care of it I don't know I mean it how about you just how about you just come down the Mass Pike you know Sturrow Drive you don't you don't want to do that the bridges I mean the college students haven't figured it out yet I mean it's just not it's not gonna you know just just take the Mass Pike King how about how about you just go that way right your plan doesn't really make a lot of sense to me do they do that of course not right That's not how it works. What we do instead is we reorient our plans for the king's plans. We don't ask the king to reorient his plans for our plans and for what makes sense for us. And John is announcing the king is coming. Jesus is coming. And so reorient your your plans, your thoughts, your lives around him, your traditions around him, your families around him, your careers around him, your relationships around him and him alone, right? This is so important because so many of us, even Christians, have this idea that repentance is turning in the way that I see appropriate. When what we get here is real repentance is turning from things as Jesus sees appropriate. We have our ideas of these are the things that I want to clean up and Jesus says, no, this whole, this whole thing is what I'm going to take care of. And so many people say, I'll welcome Jesus in as long as he comes in the way I want him to come in, as long as he doesn't change this or this or that. And maybe it's a relational issue that you're saying, everything, just don't touch that. This particular relationship that I know is not honoring to you. Or maybe it's a sexual sin. You touch all of this, but I, I really need this. Or, or, or maybe it's a financial situation. All of this, but not this. Or maybe it's your career. I know this isn't working out in a way that's honoring to you and my family. You can touch everything, but just not that because it's, it's kind of a big deal. No. Real repentance is reorienting your life to him. Real repentance is Jesus-centered repentance. John the Baptist's repentance was all about Jesus and being ready for Jesus, not getting your act together. See, so many people ha- have this view of the Christian faith that means I'm going, I'm going to use the Christian faith to get my life cleaned up, right? Like the king is, is, is coming into town 
It's kind of like the Olympics even coming to town. I'm from Atlanta originally. And so in 1996, the, the Olympics came to Atlanta. And many people, just like in Boston, mix reviews. I don't know if we really want that. It's a headache. It's all crazy. And there are other people like, yeah, I don't really care about the Olympics, but you know what? It's going to fix up our roads. We're going to have some really nice rest areas. It's going to be great. And so you know what? If that's what it takes to get our roads cleaned up, to get some nice rest areas, to get some money dumped into the city, well, that sounds good. But how many people treat Jesus that way? Like, hey, if Jesus, if the church life, if, if Christianity can keep my kids out of trouble, well, that's good, right? If, if Jesus and the church can keep me faithful in my family situation, well, then that's, that's good, right? That's, that's cool. If Jesus can, can, can bless me and give me what I want and, and be a place where I can check in from time to time on Sundays, around the holidays, and make myself feel better about myself, like, yeah, I'm spiritual, then that's good. But is that Jesus-centered repentance? No, that's me-centered repentance. I'm going to use Jesus to get myself cleaned up. And with this thinking, it could be sports. Sports are good. They keep my kids out of trouble. It could be academics. My kid really likes to study. He studies a lot. He keeps him out of trouble. It could be a mentorship program, and you make all these messiahs of other things. Biblical repentance, though, is centered completely on Jesus, not Jesus, give me what I want, Jesus, I got an objective for you. You reorient and and just fulfill me and give me what I need. No, real repentance is reorienting your life around Jesus. That's repentance. And so if your repentance is clean up, maybe a little Jesus on the side, that'd be nice. That's not repentance. Repentance, biblically, is Jesus-centered. Here's the next point. Real repentance excuses no one. It excuses no one. Look at, look at verse 6 again if we can. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. What's he saying? He's saying everyone needs Jesus. Jesus is for everyone. All flesh. Not just Jewish flesh. Which for them was really, really difficult. Like Jesus is for the non-Gentiles? or the non-Jews, for the, for the Gentiles. They were so ethnocentric, it's all about them. And he says, oh no, it's not what you're expecting. Jesus is for all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So his message is everyone needs salvation. Or I'll say it this way, his message is everyone is broken. Everyone is broken. And everything is broken. And Jesus is going to come in and he's going to restore all things. Now let's, let's read on, verses 7 and 8. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. What? John doesn't mess around, does he? I mean, this guy is, is he's gutsy, man. And crowds have come to the wilderness to see him. And what does he say? You brood of vipers. <laughs> now, I usually will open up my sermons with some warm greetings and, and maybe a joke. But could you imagine this morning 
if I do this. You snakes. Can you imagine? <laughs> that's, that's exactly what he did. He does. You're a bunch of dirt bags. That's how he opens. That's his opening illustration. No pictures. No funny stories. I would lose a lot of friends. And John says, look at how I'm dressed. Do you think I care what you think about me? You're a bunch of snakes. Can you imagine how the people of Israel felt? Those guys must have been worked up. Uh, John, you must have been in the woods a little too long because you forgot that we are children of Abraham. We are the people of of God. We are the good guys, John. We know our Old Testament very well, and the snake, that's the wrong team. We are not snakes. We are on God's team. He says, no, you're on Satan's team. Then watch what John does. He then anticipates their next move, what they're thinking. Verse 8, he says, and do not begin to say to yourself, we have Abraham as our father. He says, don't say, whoa, 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 we're the people of God. He says, don't pull that one on me. I know what you're thinking. Yes, you're Israel. Yes, you're descendants of father Abraham. But that doesn't mean that you're in. It doesn't mean that you're right with God. John says, no, it's about your heart. And inwardly, wrong team. Now, Here's what we take away from this. We take away that no one is off the hook. No one is excused here. Everyone, all flesh, even God's people, must repent. Matthew gives the same story here. He gives a little bit of a different account in terms of he he gives more illustration. It doesn't contradict, but he tells us specifically That when John speaks, he's speaking to the religious leaders directly when he says, you snakes. And so they are, can you imagine, pretty angry. But in everybody else's eyes, wait, if anybody's okay, these spiritual leaders are okay, right? Have you ever felt that way? Like there are some people, maybe you feel like that about yourself, like I am obviously okay with God. Are he or she obviously okay with God? I mean, look at their lives. And John is saying, "Uh uh-uh. Look under the hood. Suzuki. Snake. These were people who externally looked really good. But internally, their hearts were off. And you might on the outside look like a mighty fine Christian. You might never swear you might be a one-woman man, might be a good mom, a good dad. You might even open up your Bible every now and again, and pray over your meals, or check into church. But John anticipates their thoughts, and he says, listen, even you upstanding people need to repent because it's about the heart, and we're born with crooked hearts. In sin, my mother conceived me. The scriptures will tell us. We're born with crooked hearts. It's about the, the heart. So real repentance is for everyone. Real repentance excuses no one. 
And so nobody in this room, myself included right now, should be checking out and saying, okay, I'm going to drift because this doesn't really apply to me. No, it does, absolutely. Here's the next one. Real repentance will bear fruit. Look again at verse 8. It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. So John says, if your heart has been changed, if what's under the hood is where the investment was made, then you're going to start to see some fruit. You're going to start to see some, some fruit. So I, last night, I got in at almost midnight from, from preaching at a camp in New Hampshire. And last night, about 9 o'clock, was my last of three sermons. And uh, I stood before all these kids and, and, and teenagers, a couple hundred, and just told them about Jesus and how they needed Jesus. And I called them to faith in, in Jesus. And you've got to trust in what Jesus has done and become a, a Christian. And there were kids all over the place professing to give their lives to Jesus. And I laid last night in bed at midnight and I, I prayed and I said, God, I just pray that this would bear fruit. I pray that this would not be some emotional cry night at camp, but it would be something that would last, that it would bear fruit. And, and at camp, I get to talk to a lot of pastors and youth pastors and, and youth workers. And I'm always certain to tell them, listen, a lot of these kids are going to claim to give their lives to Jesus. Don't then check out and say, well, they're good. Let me go focus on the others who actually need Jesus now. now. You have to continue to pour into them and ensure that fruit starts to grow. And that takes time. And so I can't stand here and say, a hundred kids gave their lives to Jesus last night. I could say, a hundred kids professed to give their lives to Jesus last night. But let's look at that plant in a year and see what it's producing and see what's growing. And that takes time. That's why we see fruit keeping with repentance. And if there's no fruit in your life, then we have to ask some really hard questions. In John, another John, John chapter 15, he says we have to bear fruit, fruit that will last. See, sometimes fruit will come quickly and then it just, it's gone. And the tree stops producing fruit. And John is telling us, listen, that's a fake out. <laughs> that's what that is. Maybe it was the end thing for a moment. You've seen this? And you're running some Christian circles. It's the end thing for a moment. You have some Christian friends who lived a certain way or some families that you've kind of come across and it seems to be working for their family. And you say, you know what, that, sound, that sounds good. I'm going to start to live like that. And, and you start to try to act like them and act in a way that you're told is pleasing to the Lord. But we need fruit that will last for the long haul. Because what starts to happen is you just get tired of, of that. Maybe it's in your own life or you've seen it in other people's lives where you think, wow, look at that. I remember that moment they gave their life to Jesus and there was some fruit there. But with time, it stopped producing fruit. And what you saw was that that wasn't real fruit, lasting fruit. That was what we call fabricated morality. I've got all these people around me and I'm going to try to look like them. Real repentance will bear fruit. We have to ask that of our own lives. We have to ask that about people we're praying for, our children as we seek to lead them to Jesus. We've got to say, is there real fruit? And that takes time. 
So it's a process. I believe that there is a moment in somebody's life where they pass from death to life, but sometimes it's blurry because the fruit doesn't start popping out until later. And so take time with people. That's why the, the scriptures will tell us, Jesus will tell us the, the, the great commission is make disciples of all nations and, 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 and you've got to continue to teach them. So it's not just, hey, notch on my belt. I told somebody about Jesus. See, look at that. But you've got to walk with them after that. See what fruit comes up. Real repentance will bear fruit, which leads to our next point. And that is that real repentance begins at the root. Let's look at verse 9 if we can. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Oh, John was really good at ticking people off, huh? He says, if you're not bearing fruit, you're likely heading to hell. The fire. Now, my wife and I used to live in central Massachusetts, about an hour outside of the city in the sticks. We had two acres of land, and uh, I'm, I'm very limited with handyman skills. Some of you know that very well. But I thought, surely I can plant some shrubs, right? I, I can do that, right? And, and so Becky and I planted some, some shrubs around the house, tried to make it look good. And guess what? Some of them flowered in time. And the next year, some of them flowered again, same ones. But others did not. And so what did I do? I said, they're dead. And I cut them down at the roots, and I threw them in the fire pit. I really loved my fire pit more than I did my house. I was so excited to have this massive fire pit and just being Elijah. It was awesome. <laughs> they weren't doing what they were made to do. They weren't flowering, and so I threw them in the fire. And you and I have been made to bear fruit that would glorify God and would flourish our world. And if we're not doing that, we're not doing what we were made to do. We're not walking in step with God. We're not, in fact, children of God if that's not happening. You're not doing what you were made for. Now, I could have gone to the grocery store and bought some flowers and came home while my wife was at work because I worked from home and she worked at an office and cut the stems all the way up to just the head of the flower and then grabbed some pins and, and taken the flowers and pinned them to all of these shrubs and made it look like there were flowers on this amazing shrubbery. And I could have taken some spray paint and spray painted the leaves that were starting to turn brown, green, and made it look really, really good so that when my wife came home from work, I could say, look, my love, Aren't you pleased? Look at my skill. I have given for you this wonderful plant. And she say, oh, my charming husband, you're so beautiful. But you know what? Within a few days, those flowers would start to wilt. And if it rained, the spray paint would start to wash off. And so... I would go to the grocery store and I would get some flowers and I would cut them down and I would pen them and I would spray paint it and get it all looking good. And she would say, doing great, honey. What a green thumb you have there. But now, 
The leaves are starting to fall off because of the wind. And so I've got to go to the grocery store and get the flowers and the spray paint. But I also got to make sure there's a lot of leaves that I can cut one by one by one and start pinning not only flowers and spray paint, but, but leaves on the bush. And what happens is it just starts to get exhausting to please my wife. Why? Because it's not natural. It's not alive. It's not producing from the ground up. And that's some of us with spiritual fruit. It's like we're putting things on and we're piling things on, good deeds and trying to look holy and act holy. And what you're going to find is that if it's not coming from the root, if it's not coming from life, it is exhausting. Morality is exhausting. Religion is exhausting. And religion is, I'm going to work my way up to God and try to earn his favor and try to please him. And that is exhausting. And the message of John the baptizer is that Jesus is not expecting you to work up to him. He's coming to you and he's stooping all the way down and he's changing you at the root level. He's planting some seeds that are going to bring forth life and produce fruit and fruit that will last And if you're not bearing fruit, you're not doing what you're designed to do, you're not alive, cut you down in the fire because you're not a child of God. God is not fooled. He's not fooled. Real repentance begins at the root. Real repentance is about what's under the hood. And so, you would never put a new paint job on a car that won't start. You would never sink thousands of dollars into a car that cost you five hundred dollars kidding me what a waste of effort you need a new engine you need a new heart have you turned to jesus and said here i am make me new from the inside out that's repentance that's repentance and so let's, let's begin to close up. Look at verse 10. And so the crowds asked him, well, what then shall we do? Some of you there are like, oh, okay, what do we do then? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. You know, the tax collectors who... Your tax bill was 100, and they were like, it looks like it says 150, and they would pocket the 50, those dirt bags. Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And soldiers who would flex their power to oppress weaker people and show their weapons, you better listen. And some of you guys got a man in your life who's hard on you and physical with you, you better drop him. God's not okay with that. And he says to them, what? He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So he gives this amazing picture. He says, okay, here's here's what it's going to look like right now. Here's what real change, new life looks like. Here's here's a picture of the fruit, and that is that people start to look out for the needs of others. They start to clothe the poor. They start to feed 
the hungry. People stop stealing from the financially destitute for personal gain. People stop flexing their, their power to hurt the weak. That's what fruit looks like. It talks about people giving away clothes and, and, and food. It talks about the tax collectors. You're no longer going to be ripping people off. Powerful soldiers. No longer showing off your weapons to oppress people and to prey on the weak. In their day, if just these three scenarios that he talked about changed, it would be a massive, massive change in their region. Average people caring for the needy. People honoring God in their, their jobs, not making it all about self. It's a, a picture of a variety of types of people who are deeply repentant at the core and it flips their world upside down. And I look around the room today and I look at all of your lives and the different jobs that are represented and the home situations and the marriages and the relationships and the friendships and the dating and all of this. Listen, if we were deeply repentant, it too would flip our world upside down. If we all were deeply repentant instead of deeply religious, it would affect real change. We always say, let's change the world. Let's start by asking God to change my heart. And if we each do that, there would be real change taking place because we couldn't help but care for the poor around us to feed people around us, to be honest and upright and have integrity in our careers and in our relationships, care for people, the widow and the orphan, the people who tend to be the most oppressed. Amazing change. So let's keep reading. 15 to the end. It says, and as the people were an expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Isn't it good news? This is good news. We don't have to play this exhausting religious game anymore. He preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, crazy sexual sin, the other scriptures will tell us, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, John called him out, added to this, that he locked up John in prison. What happens when you start to call people out for their sin? You're not liked. John got his head chopped off for calling out their, their sin, Herod's sin, sexually. This is radical thinking, isn't it? So the people start to say, this is like nothing we've ever heard before. Is he the Messiah? And John says, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoelace. Like, that's not me. He says, I will outwardly baptize you. Jesus will come in and he will baptize you in the heart. The Holy Spirit will give you a new heart. 
change you from the inside out. And then he says, Jesus will come in with his farmer's fork, right? And he will enter into the barn. And on the floor, he will look at the harvest and he will say, alive, dead, alive, dead, alive, dead. Fruit bearing, not fruit bearing. That's what he's gonna do. He's gonna discern which of us is a living plant that's bearing fruit, displaying repentance from the root, or if we are a dead plant piling on religiosity. He's going to do that for all of us one day. But the option before us today is we can come before the Lord and we can say, Lord, like David, search my heart. Know my thoughts and show me the wicked way within me. Lead me to the way everlasting. And that humble prayer is the kind of prayer that Jesus likes to honor. And so I want to call us to that today. Real repentance. And so would you close your eyes and let's just, in this moment, let's just kind of come before the Lord. It's just a time of spiritual diagnostic. And let's just ask him to show us our hearts, to discern our hearts for us. And and I would just encourage you right now, just ask the Lord, God, show me in my heart what's going on. You know me more than I even know myself. Am I fooling myself? Am I fooling others? Am I deeply repentant? Am I alive in Christ? Because Jesus has lived the life I could not live and died the death that I deserve in my place so that if I trust in his righteousness and the new heart that he gives me, I can be made new and bear fruit naturally, effortlessly because it's coming from deep within. It's coming from God, the Holy Spirit inside of me. God, do your work in our hearts. Lord, as we respond in song, may it not just be music. May it be a time of talking to you, being honest with you, reflecting. Lord, please save people in this moment. I pray right now that there would be people who would cry out and say yes to Jesus, receive your grace. And I pray that there would be Christians in this room that would repent because it's a life of repentance. Even though we're one time made new, we continue to repent. And so do that work in us as well. But search our hearts, Lord. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the ministry of John the baptizer. We respond now in Jesus' name. Amen.